All right, and welcome back to another episode of Fantasy Football with Gumbo. This is Ja, and uh, today we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, this is going to be a solo episode in which I want to talk about some of the guys that I've been having a, you know what I'm saying, um, I've been keeping an eye on throughout the season as we kind of come to the end of month one of Fantasy Football. And I just want to kind of bring to the light some of the things that I have noticed that may or may not be useful to you uh pukunakua has been interesting because he has absorbed something similar to a cooper cup role within this los angeles rams offense and he is getting targets he's getting more targets than most guys in the nfl right i think i think it's between him and keenan allen right now in terms of who's the bigger target monster but within the offense pukunakua is seeing north of in most games at least you know 12 targets now, in week three against the Bengals, they finally said, hey, we're going to slow this guy down. He's not going to beat us. Uh, he is not about to go Cooper Cup on us. He's not that good. Let's give him more attention. Let's keep an outside linebacker, you know, covering this guy. Um, and let's go ahead and make sure that we make them, you know, spread the ball around. And the Rams couldn't do that. Right. So now they kind of gave up the recipe moving forward as to how to stop their offense, which is focusing on Puka. Right. Like he was a nice two week surprise for the league, for fantasy. You know, people thought his first week was kind of like a joke. They didn't take it seriously. They thought week two. OK, maybe the guy just got lucky. Right. Like maybe the guy just got lucky and this will never happen again. Right. But week three, finally, the Bengals said, nah, nah. And they shut it down as much as they could, at least. Uh, Puka still ended the game, I think, with about five catches for 78 yards. Uh, I don't know if it was five catches, but I do know he had 78 yards. Another game where he fell short a couple yards before the touchdown, which sucked. But regardless, I'm kind of worried about Puka Nakua's usage when Cooper Cup does arrive back to the team. Because the way people have kind of phrased what Puka's going to do when Cooper Cup returns is they say that Puka's going to be like Robert Woods. And Robert Woods, while he was a useful receiver within the Sean McVay offense, Robert Woods was also kind of a part of the offense like, I don't know, like three, four years ago. I'm not saying that much has changed, but like this team has gone on and won a Super Bowl without a Robert Woods, you know, uh, since he was last really like, I guess, effective within the offense. So the reason I say that, and the reason I really bring that out and I try to kind of talk down Robert Woods role within that offense is because over the last three years, it hasn't really been there. And this offense has kind of adjusted into what it is now with Matthew Stafford. You know, this is no longer Jared Goff. This is Matthew Stafford. This is a offense tailored towards what Matthew Stafford likes to do. And within this offense, kind of like I've mentioned earlier, they run a ton of bunch formations with their receivers, right? They they know they don't have superstar receivers out there right now. And they, they, they've they kind of always done this, but they run bunch formations. And what I mean by bunch formations is they have three receivers on one side of the offensive line flanked out. And, you know, they're all basically within 10 feet of each other, five feet of each other. And what that does is it makes it hard for DBs to man up and press because once all three release from the line of scrimmage, and all three are within five to 10 feet of each other. You don't know who's going where. And now you're bumping into your cornerbacks, your guys who you're supposed to be covering with, and you're inadvertently picking each other off. And now those wide receivers have 
you know, um, big plays off of broken coverage. So with Cooper Cup, who came out of Eastern Washington, he was never like a all world athlete. Right. Like that was never really his game. He was never a Justin Jefferson or a Jamar Chase. Right. He was a guy in which, you know, he has pretty reliable hands. I think, you know, uh, Julian Edelman to an extent. Uh, they play a pretty similar game. But Cooper Cup was their best receiver. Robert Woods was always, I think, underrated, but no one really thought of him as like a game breaking wide receiver. And so an advantage that Sean McVay employed within his offense is he said, hey, let me go ahead and bunch these guys up, right? Like, let's make the defense think. Let's get them off our ass a little bit. And you know what? What that's going to do is that's going to force these defenses out of man coverage when they play us. They're going to have to play us in zone because that's the only other viable coverage if I can't press. And, you know, ultimately beating zone coverage is just taking what's available to you, right? So if you play Madden, you know that, with most cover twos cover threes like you'll find your gaps within like the first seven eight yards of the play you know you hit the receiver right in that window if you're precise and if you understand nfl defenses then it makes it really easy jared goff was i think like he's a good passer and you know he he's actually on a streak right now with the lions of not throwing a pick in however many games or he was at least last time i checked last week but he didn't have the arm talent that Matthew Stafford has. Matthew Stafford just throws a little bit stronger of a ball. Like he's, you know, a former baseball guy. It's just a little bit stronger. It's a little bit of of like a stronger bullet. And that bullet allows him to get a ball where it needs to be precisely and quickly, which is the key to breaking, you know, I guess busting those zones. And that's where Cooper Cup kind of took the step up because when he got Matthew Stafford in the picture, he started getting quicker balls. Matthew Stafford has always had a history of targeting his primary guy. It goes back to Calvin Johnson. It goes back to Kenny Galladay. It goes back to Golden Tate. It goes back to Cooper Cup, right? Like his entire career, this dude has targeted his ex receiver at a ridiculous rate. And so at a certain point, he's just going to say, hey, I'm giving the ball to my best guy. If Cooper Cup comes back, he's going to be his best guy. So Puka Nakua is interesting because he basically plays the closest thing to the Cooper Cup role. You look at a 2-2 Atwell, and 2-2 Atwell really reminds me of Odell Beckham Jr. in 2021 when he played half the season on the Rams. He's like that deep intermediate threat, right? Like he's that guy who catches passes 10 to 15 yards down the field pretty regularly. Like he's uh he's the second level of the passing offense. Evan Jefferson is the deepest guy who runs twenty yards downfield trying to catch a bomb. And if Puka's a possession guy, high volume guy who works primarily within the first like seven yards of the coverage and then he tries to get yak. Tutu Atwell fits in that zone right he 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 fits into the passing offense as an option that's a little bit deeper down the field compared to a Puka Nakua or a Cooper Cup, but not as deep down the field as like a Van Jefferson. So that's what Odell Beckham did best in 2021, right? And I think Tutu Atwell is going to continue to play that role because that 2021 offense led the Rams to a Super Bowl. And if Tutu Atwell is now your Odell and Van Jefferson, who was a part of that 2021 offense, is still there, and if Cooper Cup comes back healthy and now he's still there, 
you basically just re- you're replacing Odell at that point. And if Tutu, who's actually wide receiver 14 in fantasy, which is crazy, but if Tutu is replacing that kind of Odell, like deep intermediate guy who plays out of the slot, you got to really hope that Puka Nakua can find his way onto the field, which don't get me wrong. I think he will. Like, I think he's talented enough to do that. You might have heard that. You might be freaking out in your car right now. Uh, but I'll say that if Cooper Cup does come back healthy, I don't see Van Jefferson leaving the field because I think he's the best deep threat they have. And so it's going to be a battle between Tutu Atwell and Puka in terms of who's going to play the slot. And right now, I think Tutu is a little bit faster. Like, he's a more similar athlete to what Odell Beckham Jr. was. But Puka's, the name of his game has been target volume because he hasn't gotten into the end zone yet. He's not an overly explosive athlete. He's not exactly a contested catch guy. He's a pretty reliable option, and so he gets a ton of target volume, which boosts him up the fantasy ranks. But if you're talking about this guy losing 50% of his volume, 60% of his volume because Cooper Cup's back, who Matthew Stafford is... If Cooper Cup is healthy, Matthew Stafford's targeting Cup at a much higher rate than what Puka's going to get. Right? Like, they play too similar of a role, and Cup is just better at it. Cup's the better receiver. But truth be told, man, like, you you would hope that Puka can get more reps in, maybe at the expense of Tutu Atwell. But right now, if I'm a Puka owner in redraft, I... Assuming that you got him, let's say you drafted him like me at the very end of your redraft league, or you picked him up off of waivers for 10, 20, 30 bucks, fab maybe. I'm trading him for a wide receiver too that I think uh, could potentially see somewhat of an uptick. So I'm talking like a Jalen Waddle who's missed a game because of a concussion. His first two games weren't overly impressive. I'm talking about maybe a Devontae Smith. Like Jalen Hurts ain't tossing. Jalen Hurts is trying to become, I guess, more of a passer and more of a pocket guy. But the offense is still figuring itself out. And we haven't maybe seen peak Devontae Smith this season yet. I don't think that you could have ever really gotten Justin Jefferson or Jamar Chase for Puka one, like one for one. Right. Like, I don't I, I didn't see any of that happening. But I think right now you could go out and get yourself a nice wide receiver, too, who can replace Puka in your lineup. And worst case scenario, if we're wrong, okay, there's going to be a couple weeks in which Puka is going to outscore your guy that you traded for. And, you know, fuck it. That, like, that sucks. And it is what it is. But if you're right and Puka does see a regression with a healthy Cooper Cup back in the lineup and you have a wide receiver, too, that you bought low on, like a Devontae Smith, like a Jalen Waddle, who ends up kind of turning things on as they enter the second month of the season, well then, okay, I think you kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, you you make some gains there. And I guess I say all that to say, like, if I'm trading Puka, I'm targeting maybe, like, a low-end wide receiver, too. I I don't know if I'm going Garrett Wilson for Puka Nakua right now because Puka just has a better quarterback who's going to get him more volume. I think Garrett Wilson almost has to fight for his volume. He he does he, he has to fight for catches too hard. And I don't mean fight as in like there's a bunch of other options in the pass game. The passes that come to Garrett Wilson are just shit. 
they're bad passes. Zach Wilson is not a good quarterback. These passes are in the dirt three yards before they get to Gary Wilson on the curl route. Like, I don't, what do you want him to do? The quarterback's not accurate. The quarterback turns the ball over at a high clip rate. They're always losing, so you would think that Gary Wilson would see a high volume of catches, but he, funny enough, has maybe the 33rd best quarterback in the NFL at best. Throwing him the ball. The dude just gets shit targets, and if not for those touchdowns, in week three he would have scored, I think, four points. In week one without that touchdown, we're talking about this dude scoring maybe once again three, four, five, three or four points. Like when he doesn't get a touchdown, which I think, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think he's going to have to be the majority of Zach Wilson's passing touchdowns because of his talent and his ability to go ahead and make free catches, circus catches. But Gary Wilson right now, he's tough, bro, because he just needs touchdowns and you're relying on touchdowns. And if you had a Mike White back there, if you had a Colt McCoy back there, just a precision pocket passer who can accurately like just dink and dunk down the field, I would love Garrett Wilson. I would love him because I think he's a yak god. I think this dude makes just he does some weird shit when after he catches the ball, the way he catches the ball, everything about what he does on the field is almost unusual. It looks crazy. But you always are left kind of like jaw on the floor and you're like, what the fuck did this guy just do? He makes ridiculous catches. He has a he has extremely, extremely, extremely good concentration when it comes to catching the football. But it says a lot when a guy like that can't even make do with, you know, his at the moment QB one. Right. Like DeAndre Hopkins, me and Dugo talked about this, but D Hop made it work with anyone right like he made it work with fucking Matt Schaub he made it work with um you know what I'm saying Savage he made it work with just a bunch of backup quarterbacks early in his career because he was a great receiver uh but he also adjusted to catches very well which is something Gary Wilson does but I guess the reason Gary Wilson I, I'm not expecting D-hop level production from him if we're comparing him to D hop in the early days in which he's catching passes from Matt Schaub and Tom Savage and like Brian Hoyer and all these guys, D hops a little bit bigger of a prospect. He He's just bigger than Garrett Wilson. Like Wilson and Olave are more so in like that new era of wide receivers who come in small slinky, but they run great routes. I think Jordan Addison's another one of those, but DeAndre Hopkins was a much larger prospect. He's, you know, 6'2", 6'3", right? So he has a larger catch radius. So the quarterback had more room for error because D-Hop and with his crazy athletics, you know what I'm saying, he could go up there and, I guess, make up for more of your errors. Meanwhile, Gary Wilson's, you know, six foot by what the paperwork says. He can make crazy catches, but his catch radius ain't the same as a guy who that like that's where I guess uh height really comes into the situation. That's where that arm length comes into a situ comes into the situation. Because if you're good and you can adjust, you know, for the catch, you can typically do more with that when you're longer, when you're bigger, and you just have a wider catch radius. So Gary Wilson, he's gonna he's gonna have a 
they need to get a quarterback in there. I don't think they will. I think they're stuck on Wilson. I think they don't want to burn any bridges with Wilson. I kind of want to get into the Jet Blue theory. If you don't know what the Jet Blue theory is, uh, Zach Wilson's uncle owns Jet Blue or founded Jet Blue. And Jet Blue has been the basically like the team plane provider for the New York Jets since 2009. And so me personally, I think it's a little crazy that we see Zach Wilson kind of get hyped out of nowhere by only the Jets coming into the draft. And then this guy gets opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Right. Uh, like at a certain point, I'd have to think that that caught, like there's no way Robert Sala, who knows football, thinks that Zach Wilson gives him the best shot to win. I don't believe that for a second. That's Cap. He's the coach and he wants to keep composure and the room and, Wilson's built up some, you know what I'm saying, like good credit with uh with Aaron Rodgers and, you know, the coaching staff, and he has put in some work, but the guy's just flat out not good. And if he was a DB who just sucked, the team would have no issue benching him next week. The team would have no issue releasing him. If he was a linebacker that just didn't pan out, he'd be fucking on the streets as a free agent a year and a half into his contract, two years into his contract. Right, like we 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 see it every year. We see first round picks who don't hit that are released two years later. We see third round picks nowadays on the streets. Shit, the same off season. So it's one of those interesting things to where I think he's going to be a part of the team maybe longer than we'd all like to see, which means Garrett Wilson's going to have to suffer a little bit longer than we'd like to see. And at this point of the season, we're getting into the territory of I need crucial wins. Like, I need crucial one. Like, bro, week four, week five, week six, you're basically establishing the identity of your team for the rest of the year. If you're 0-3, you need to start picking it up now or it's over. If you're 1-2 right now, then you need some wins and you need you need to start getting ahead or else you're going to be biting your fingernails until the last week. And if you're 3-0 and or if you're 2-1, and well, then, hey, this is where you pick up those guys who might be able to fill in during the playoff weeks when you encounter buys or if you encounter really bad matchups late in the season, right? Like this is where you can kind of coast, but you're maybe picking up those free agents and you're utilizing those waivers to stash guys who can provide value later, right? This is the time of year where you stash a Jamison Williams. This is the time of the year where you stash a Kyler Murray guys with high upside that can come in in week seven, eight, nine, start to develop, you know, back into their game. They can start putting numbers up, and if you are struggling at quarterback, you can plug in a Kyler Murray. If you need a high-end flex, you can plug in a Jamison Williams, who, honestly, I think Jamison Williams is going to see a lot of work in Detroit because that team needs another passing weapon. Like, don't get me wrong, Sam Laporte is cool, but ideally my second passing weapon would not be my tight end. Jameer Gibbs, he's getting integrated into the offense, but I think once you have a true, true deep threat like a Jamison Williams. You open up the field for Jameer Gibbs to get more of those, you know, short area catches. You open up the field for Sam Laporta to make more of those intermediate catches, uh, get a little less coverage on them. You open up the field for Amon Ra to maybe not see as much double coverage because, I don't know, maybe you want to keep a, a an extra safety out there to cover, you know, half of the field, whatever it may be. Jamison Williams is going to open up this offense and this offense with an amazing offensive line is going to have time to throw it downfield. Jared Goff has always shown that he will throw it downfield. 
right? And so when you combine a great offensive line with a potentially, you know, great deep threat, that's what we like to see. That's what we like to see. That's the number one key that I I don't think I've ever really stated on the podcast. But when I'm looking at deep threats, the first thing I'm looking at outside of quarterback, obviously, is the O-line. Because if you have a shit O-line, your quarterback's not going to get the opportunity to toss it deep, right? There's going to be a defensive tackle in your face 1.5 to 2 seconds into the play. And you need at least 2.5 to 3 to get to where you need to get to down the field. Right. So, you know, what I'm saying like uh, there's just like I'll, I'm looking forward to Christian Watson because the Packers, even though they're missing an Elton Jenkins and they're missing a David Bakhtiari, they have a pretty good O-line and Jordan Love is a deep ball thrower. So Christian Watson will get lots of opportunities to catch deep passes, which will help his numbers. I like a Jamison Williams on the Lions because he has a great O-line. He has weapons that can be utilized in the middle of the field. So now they have incentive to toss it downfield to make the defense respect it. Right? Like the Lions are going to toss it downfield to force the defense to have to respect it so they can open up the rest of the offense. And Jamison Williams, all he needs is one. Right? Kyler Murray, he's a guy who's going to play this year, y'all. I know they've been talking down on the Cardinals all offseason. I know people forget to mention Kyler Murray when they talk about the best quarterbacks in the NFC. But he's going to play this season. He is. He's coming off an ACL. He's a mobile quarterback. And if this team's in the market for a new quarterback next year, they're going to have to trade Kyler. Like, you don't want that noise around a new quarterback, like, in a system. I I know the Cardinals don't exactly get the best rep of doing things the right way. But, dog, you don't want to have Kyler there if you draft a Caleb Williams or a Drake May or any of those guys. And so, ultimately... I think Kyler Murray is going to have to show that he can play and he can play well and he can play in a different system. This system that's being ran by Rich Gannon is different than the system that was ran by Cliff Kingsbury. Cliff Kingsbury basically ran an air raid spread offense, right? Similar to what they ran at Oklahoma and it's just Kyler in the backfield, four or five receivers out on the field, all spread horizontally throughout and it's pick and choose right? The defense is basically in dime coverage, quarters coverage, trying to go ahead and cover these wide receivers. And because they're following these wide receivers all around the field, it creates, you know, opportunities for Kyler Murray to roll out of the pocket and run up field and make big plays with his feet. Uh, No, this offense is more so based in, who do you know? Kyle Shanahan's outside zone offense. Right. So you look at the offensive coordinator, uh, which is Drew Petzing in Arizona. He comes from the Kevin Stefanski, you know, Kyle Shanahan, Nathaniel Hackett tree. So he runs a lot of outside zone formations. His, I think, variance of the offense really emphasizes the play action as well. So if you've been paying attention, you know, James Conner has been having a crazy fucking year in fantasy. Right, he's RB7 so far. We hope it continues, but he's been getting a lot of work. He runs a lot of outside zone as well, right? So he creates a lot of big plays sometimes. And Marquise Brown, who's the burner on the team, really gets his work on like those play action plays. Michael Wilson gets action on those play action down the field plays. And that's typically when they get their 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 long shots. Now, 
Josh Dobbs has been a pretty conservative quarterback. I want to say he's like statistically he's been more conservative than most. Um, doesn't really throw the ball down the field. Now, I think the Cardinals right now, they're completing almost 69% of their passes, and Josh Dobbs doesn't have any turnovers, but only, I guess, 40% of his passes travel more than 10 yards past the line of scrimmage. Right? So 60% of his passes are traveling less than 10 yards. He has... I don't know, man. He plays really conservative. But I say all that to say that Kyler Murray is going to have to show that he can adjust to this offense because it's going to be important to any team that's eventually going to trade for the guy. Right? Like, no one else runs an air raid style of offense. The closest thing is maybe what they do out there in Baltimore uh, this year in which, you know, they play a lot of spread with Zay Flowers and Odell and all those guys. So this style of offense is more so consistent with what we see the whole NFL adopting to, which is like that Kyle Shanahan outside zone offense. We see it with Mike McDaniels and Miami. It's starting to become a staple. We see a variation of it in uh, Cincinnati with Burrow, uh, Zach Taylor. We see it in Los Angeles with the Rams, right? So basically Kyler Murray is going to get an opportunity to run a style of offense that damn near like a third of the league probably getting close to a half of the league runs and if Kyler Murray can come in there and shut people up and show that he's more than like a air raid style of quarterback and he can come in there and he can show that he is healthy post ACL because a lot of his superpowers come from his mobility then he's actually going to be tradable and because you know the team has gotten better every year with him and he has played in the playoffs you know, I think that he could probably demand a a plethora of draft picks, yo. Like, the Cardinals might not get the number one draft pick, but if they trade Kyler Murray and they go into this draft with, you know, three first-rounders with an extra one next year, so now they got five first-rounders in two years, they get three this year and they get another one next year, they trade them to, I don't know, Let's say they trade him to the Seahawks, which I doubt because it's in the division. But let's say they trade him to the Giants. They trade him to the Patriots, whoever it might be. Right? They trade him to the Bears. Who knows? But he goes somewhere. They get draft picks for him. Right? And everyone's happy. And, you know, actually speaking of everyone being happy, I'm sure everyone would be happy if these rookie receivers all popped out. If all these rookie receivers went out there and had a fucking amazing year. But that's not going to happen. And one of those guys who has shown that's not going to happen is Quentin Johnston. Quentin Johnston. Ain't done shit this year. And I know it's only three weeks, folks. I know it's only month one of the fantasy football season. But it's a little bit troublesome because with any first-round receiver, I want to see snap share. You ain't got to get the targets. You ain't got to be a beast yet. You ain't got to have the 60-yard touchdowns like a Jordan Addison does. Someone I might have said could be the best rookie receiver in this class. But you got to at least get on the fucking field, dude. Like, Quentin Johnson, 20% snap share tells me more than that he's a rookie. Like, dude, everyone's a rookie. There's a lot of rookies playing NFL football. There's a lot of first-round rookies starting. Let's talk about that. Like, Quentin Johnson is a part of the minority of first-round picks that are not 
every snap starters. Every snap starters are growing and progressing towards being an every snap starter. Like, it's not normal in today's NFL to draft the first round receiver and then just sit them talking about some we need to develop them. Bro, if you needed to, if you knew you needed to develop them, you would have, you wouldn't have drafted them in the first round. That's what the second round and third round receivers do. They, they, they sit and they develop, right? Rasheed Rice is a second round receiver who they can afford to develop, right? They took him with high draft cap, but he's a day two pick. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't have the same expectations. And you're also not paying them the same money that you pay your first round player. First round players, first round receivers are making good money. So for Quentin Johnson to come out and effectively like play less than 25% of most of the snaps, like, like dog, like JSN may not get a bunch of targets and he may not get a bunch of volume, but he's on the field north of 50% of the snaps, which means he's a viable football player. They don't think Quentin Johnson's a viable every snap football player right now, which is alarming. That is a red flag. We don't take that lightly. Do not take that lightly. So with this Mike Williams injury, he's going to be forced into a position of, hey, show us what you can do. Right. And I think it's going to be important that he shows out and shows what he can do because this Brandon Staley shit, like it feels like it's coming to an end potentially this year. That whole regime could be out the window. GM and coach. So if you bring in a whole new regime next year and you have this rookie receiver who they drafted in the first round, he he's their lasting impression of Brandon Staley and that regime. And he disappoints his rookie year and he has butterfingers. And maybe you didn't even like the guy coming in. Maybe you also thought Jordan Addison was the better receiver at whatever organization you were at prior to taking this new job. But if a new regime does come into Los Angeles next year, after they, if they get rid of Staley and the GM, like what allegiance do you have to anything but the numbers? What allegiance do you have to Quentin Johnston, bro? Like I didn't draft you in the first round and, and you you didn't produce either. I didn't take you and you didn't produce. What the fuck do I owe you? That's just the reality of the game. Right? And so it's one of those things to where I want to see QJ really capitalize this year. He's going to have to turn it up a notch because when you just think about the politics, when you think about how the team could change, when you think about the opportunity given, like there's no clear-cut wide receiver two and an offense that's ready to go. You have one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. It may not be Patrick Mahomes. He may not be uh, Joe Burrow, right? Discard the last few weeks for Joe Burrow, but you know what I mean, right? But he's he's up there. He's a top 10 quarterback, top seven, potentially top five, if you really want to argue. You don't have an excuse as to why you can't produce. It's now or never, bro. Receivers come in ready to play the same way running backs typically come in ready to play. Receivers, you got to learn a little bit more when it comes to options and you have to build more chemistry. So it takes a little bit longer, but receivers and running backs step into the league and you know, if they can play within year one, like that's not a hard, you know what I'm saying? Like that's not a long development. They aren't tight ends. They aren't quarterbacks, right? Like they aren't middle linebackers. Like you typically know what this guy is in year one. And you, you know what I'm saying? Like you get so many of them every year that 
you can also kind of cut bait. Like we've seen Jalen Raker, who was drafted also at the end of the first round, get released after maybe like two or three years on a team that found themselves competing for a Super Bowl. If the Chargers find themselves within that same realm, every roster spot is going to become valuable with the new regime next year. And Quentin Johnson will have no promises if, if he if he doesn't show out this season. And so I want to see him go out there, do something. Like I said, with Kellen Moore, I'm interested to see what this offense looks like. I want to see if they adjust it to 12 personnel to make up for the fact that, you know, maybe they don't have three elite receivers that they fully, fully trust. Right. Because now you're talking about your wide receiver two, maybe being Josh Palmer. Your wide receiver three would be Quentin Johnston. If when all your guys were healthy, you were given Quentin Johnston 25 percent of the snaps. We'll see how comfortable you are with keeping him on the field for north of 70. Right. So who knows how they adjust the offense. But regardless, I do think that Quentin will have to fill in, you know, for those big plays. Uh, that Mike Williams would have. And what I do know about Kellen Moore is that he does run somewhat of like a modified West Coast offense, right? So he, I don't know, he does enjoy using those intermediate threats. That's why Keenan Allen sees 20 targets, right, this year. he he Keenan Allen's your classic elite intermediate threat. He can work out the slot, kill the middle of the field. That's the goal of the West Coast offense. Right, you're middle of the field, a lot of intermediate throws. Once you suck in the defense, then you hit them deep. Um, and basically you're just, you know what I'm saying? It's horizontal routes and it's quick, it's precise, and it's rhythmic. Which is why Keenan Allen, once again, is such a popular, uh, popular guy in this offense, and that's why Josh Palmer could also be popular, because Josh Palmer is a nice intermediate threat, at least what we've seen over the last few years. And he has some, you know, up the field ability as well. But because because those guys serve like those roles so well, they're almost interchangeable. Like one can be the guy who goes seven yards down the field and one can be the guy who goes 12 yards down the field. Right. And maybe QJ is just the continuous guy who's always running down the field to try to open up the open up the defense. Right. Bring a couple guys with them upfield so they create space in those boxes. But ultimately, like Quentin Johnston, I think the biggest thing that I've seen from what I've read about him from the tape, from, you know, training camp, he seems to have some struggles with catching the ball. Uh, Seems like he has sometimes like a case of the dropsies. And the one thing about like the Mike Williams role is that it's a lot of spotlight, right? Like you're typically like the highlight play on that route. When Justin Herbert tosses the ball 30, 40 yards down the field and it's you versus the DB, it's 50,000 eyes on you. It's millions of, of, of Americans sitting down on the couch watching you. Like, that's pressure, right? As somebody who played some receiver in high school, wasn't elite, wasn't that, whatever. But I, I've had a couple situations in which I run down the field on a vertical route. I'm looking at the ball up in the air. And that ball feels like it's in the air forever. Right? The quarterback throws it up. And as you're running down the field, there's so much in your head. You're looking up at the sky. So you're hoping that your feet are still in bounds if you're on the sidelines. Right? Like you ever run without looking and you start like kind of swerving a little bit. You got to make sure you're running straight. You got to fight this guy off you who's running next to you. Like trying to get his hands on you. Trying to fucking mess up uh, your concentration so you drop this ball. 
you have the suspense of shit, I better catch this ball. Right. And typically when they throw it deep, it goes higher up in the air. So there's some hang time there, similar to a punt almost. Maybe not as high as a punt, but you get the idea. And so it's a lot of pressure, man. And Quentin Johnston, if he's struggling with catches, that means that for whatever reason, like he's not a consistent catcher. And if you're not that as a first round wide receiver, you're going to get news coverage. That news coverage for your normal human is enough to throw you off your game even more. Right. When you got 20,000 people on Twitter saying you suck like that doesn't do much for your confidence. And so maybe I'm getting a little bit too psychoanalytical about this, but I really do kind of hope Quentin Johnston can shine because I'm worried about what will happen if he doesn't have like if he has a bad game in the next two weeks, like I think he could be going down. I don't want to say like bust territory or like a bust path. But I think that if he comes out and he has a game in which he has like three drops, two drops, whatever it might be, like he did in preseason, it's not going to be great. It's not going to be great. They're going to lose faith in this guy quick because this team is win now. There's jobs on the line. Like Staley has his job on the line. The GM has his job on the line. Um, You know what I'm saying? Like you got a bunch of veterans on this team who are entering, you know, towards the end of their contracts. Like, there's a lot of pressure right now, bro. And if you're not going to be consistent, I can't have you on the field. And it says a lot that he was only on the field 25% of the time. Even if he's a first-round rookie, I don't give a fuck. If you're a first-round rookie who they're already paying you a few million a year, you need to be on the field at least 50% of the time. Now, you can pull a Jackson Smith and Jigba and be on the field 50% of the snap share and not get much for targets. But at least you're on the field. At least you're seeing defenses. At least you're blocking. You're getting physical. You're getting cardio in, right? You're staying in shape. Um, you're building, like, chemistry and trust amongst your teammates, and you're doing all the shit that you need to do to go out there and be a successful football player, right? Like, if you're getting 50%, 60% snap share and you're just not getting targets, that's one thing. But you're not on the field, bro. You're not on the field. That means they don't see you as a viable enough football player to put you on the field. That's crazy. Your first-round pick like I don't know many first round picks that aren't on the field when you get picked in the first round you're an automatic starter bro it's a very small pool it's literally a handful of folks in the first round who get drafted that aren't on the field for more than 50 percent of the snaps right like it's it's go time like those are the expectations we want hall of fame out of you and so yeah we'll see what happens with that I'm not saying Quentin Johnson is going to be horrible but i Still stick with my stance of Jordan Addison is the best receiver in this class. Say Flowers is the second best. Jackson Smith and Ajigba is in a tough spot in Seattle just because he has DK and Tyler Lockett. And Seattle doesn't have a history of having a great wide receiver three. Right? Like their last wide receiver three that was good once again was like maybe 2015. Golden Tate with uh, Sidney Rice and Doug Baldwin with Russell Wilson. That was probably the last time they had three all-around effective receivers. But the game has changed so much in the last eight years that now it's a somewhat different offense. It's still Pete Carroll's, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's still Pete Carroll's team, um, but it's a different era of football, and they've adjusted some things on the offensive side of the ball, right? We talked about the 12 personnel, two tight ends. The Seahawks have Kobe Parkinson, they have Will Disley, they have Noah Fant, and they try to use all three, right? So it's a lot of two tight end sets. 
and it's a running back in the backfield, which means you only have space for the two receivers once again, which those two receivers that are going to be on the field in 12 personnel are going to be Tyler Lockett, and it's going to be DK Metcalf. The two guys making the most money with the most experience, they are the veterans, and right now they're probably the better receivers as well. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about is Kyle Pitts, who I don't believe in. Um, Kyle Pitts, it, I don't think he's going to be a Falcon for any longer than maybe the next year. I think he's going to be out of here maybe in a few months. Um, we'll see what happens, you know, this offseason. But for a guy who was taken in the top 10, he was taken in a draft class in which Micah Parsons came out, Patrick Sertain came out, Jalen Waddle was available. They had a lot of options there. Jamar Chase, I think, was in that same draft class. But, yeah, I think Kyle Pitts went fourth overall. And they could have had Jamar Chase, who's miles better than Drake London. But they chose to go with Kyle Pitts. And it's interesting they chose to go with Kyle Pitts because they run an offense in which you would typically want a tight end who digs his hands into the ground and blocks. Right, like you're a ground and pound, run the ball down their throat type of offense, and you picked a finesse tight end with your fourth overall pick. Like, what what sense does that make? I don't I don't get it. I I can somewhat understand the Drake London move a little bit more because he's a six four wide receiver. He's bigger than most cornerbacks, right? Like, if he's a willing run blocker, then he serves more of a need on your offense than most people will understand. But, like, Kyle Pitts, bro, like, his game is getting down the field. Like, he's a speedy tight end. He runs seams in the middle of the field. He's outrunning the outside linebackers that are covering him, and he's creating big plays for you. But once again, with this Falcons offense, their goal isn't to get big plays. They're not risking throwing the ball downfield, right? Like, Desmond Ritter is one of the most conservative quarterbacks in the league, and he's getting by with it. He only has one interception in the last seven games. But the thing about Desmond Ritter and that Atlanta Falcons offense is they play the game of ball control, right? Like our defense, we know what our defense is, and we don't want them on the field too often. Because if, you know, the opposing team gets ahead on us, we don't really have the offense to come back from that. You know, like our 60 to 70% of our playbook is smash mouth football. It's play action. You know what I'm saying? but play action only works after you establish the run and to establish the run, you have to run. But if we're down 14 points, then we can't even employ most of our playbook and we're out of it. So I think that's a lot of the reason why you see them run the ball as much as they do. They come out of the gates with Tyler Algier and Bijan Robinson. And their whole goal is just to have a productive first drive where they can get on the board with at least a field goal. Like they'll take any points on the first drive. The Falcons will, but I don't know, man. It's interesting because with that style of offense, you don't want turnovers. And Kyle Pitts is, once again, a guy who needs to go downfield to be at his best. And if you're not going to throw the ball downfield because you don't want to give the other offense extra possessions, then what the fuck do you do with Kyle Pitts? Because he's not like an elite run blocker. Right? Kyle Pitts starts to fall into the category of like the Dallas Goddard hype. If you remember Dallas Goddard in his earlier years, like there was a lot of hype about what that guy could be because he was like one of those first tight ends to really flank out. He was one of those first tight ends to not be in line, right? He was lining up like a receiver vertically. Uh, Similar with Dalton Kincaid and kind of what people are projecting he'll do moving forward. 
He's another tight end that doesn't maybe necessarily put his hand in the ground, three-point stance. He's lining up like a receiver. Um, We haven't really seen, like, a strong hit rate with that. I mean, I guess Travis Kelsey is maybe, like, somewhat a, 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 a variation of that, but even Travis Kelsey blocks a lot. Like, Travis Kelsey was drafted in 2013, so he spent at least, you know, three to four years developing in the era of football where, you know, they were still hidden, right? It was still kind of somewhat smash mouth, right? We're talking about, like, later AP type of years. Like, we're getting into Ty Gurley years, Derrick Henry years. And, yeah, man, Kyle Pitts just doesn't really serve a, a need in this offense. Because if you're going to go vertical, I'd assume you'd probably want to do it with Matt Collins, who's the fastest guy on the offense. Right? That's the sole reason you bring in a burner who's going to start on the opposite side of the field of Drake London. Right? Drake London's going to be the guy who gets behind the linebackers and catches those 7 to 10 yard passes. And You know what I'm saying? Like, Drake London's their intermediate threat. And... I guess at that point, like, you would ideally have a tight end who would be, like, a short yardage guy, right? Like, someone who uh, blocks and releases into, I don't know, like, a four or five yard, like, short out route or short short curl or something like that. If you really want to utilize all three levels of the football field, but if you have Matt Collins running a fucking vertical and you have Kyle Pitts running a vertical and you got Drake London doing some intermediate shit, like, that's a bad play call because you don't really have true options. And now I'm just fucking talking. I'm just talking. Uh, but I say all that shit to say, like, yo, Kyle Pitts ain't it in Atlanta. He needs to get out. I would love to see him in Dallas. I would love to see him potentially in Seattle, funny enough. Funny enough, I think he actually does fit in Seattle a little bit more. Somewhat of the same issue in that, like, Seattle can be a smash mouth football team at times. Uh, but I do think that at least with the Geno Smith, with anyone outside of Desmond Ritter, he'd at least get more shots downfield. But I actually do think he would be an amazing fit in Dallas. I think that would work really well. Um, I think he'd fit within a West Coast offense super, super well, and he'd be able to go ahead and run a ton of routes, you know, anywhere north of 10 yards, but, you know, within 10 to 15 yards on the field. So I think he'd be a great option there. Uh, but those are just some of my thoughts on the season, on some guys in the league, just thoughts that I've had since the rookie drafts. I appreciate you guys for tapping in with me. My name is Ja. This was a um, solo bonus episode for y'all. Um, tune in with us every week. We're trying to put out more content. Apologies about the mics, by the way. Um, I know if you listen to the last podcast, it got a little rough at times with the audio. We got new laptops. We got new equipment. We're trying to get it all figured out. This audio shit gets tricky once you... Once you upgrade the equipment, which is a blessing, um, there does become more that you have to kind of deal with internally. And, you know, there's more shit you need to know and there's more levels you need to adjust. And we're learning. So um, bear with us. But until we meet again, my name is Ja. Hope you guys have a great week. Good luck this, good luck this week. And uh, we'll chat in a little bit.